0: This has been a week of great historical significance. The 21st anniversary of the events of 9-11, 3,000 souls ushered into eternity suddenly at the World Trade Center and Pentagon. Also, the death of the longest reigning British monarch in all of history. We're hopeful from comments she has made that she knew Christ. And it's also been a time when we've said goodbye to brothers and sisters in Christ, to Chuck and to Louise, to Josh. We might look at a world like this as history marches on, and we see the good and the great, and we see the tragedies and the atrocities, And we might ask the question, in such a world, is God doing anything? And to answer the question, we need but look at the cross and look at the empty tomb and look at all the promises over centuries that led to the coming of the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. And to remember that God is setting things right through Jesus, the King that He has set on His holy hill in Zion. And God is demonstrating that He's at work, not only in what He did at that time on the cross and at the empty tomb, but what He has been doing ever since in the lives of those who trust in Jesus as churches spring up all over the globe, followers of Jesus, children of God those that are citizens of the heavenly kingdom that will last forever. And that is what Paul is thanking God for at the beginning of our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this. And then he begins to talk about the things he's thankful for. Why was Paul thankful to God? Well, because it was God who was accomplishing what was happening in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. To be able to see God at work in your life, in the lives of those that you love, and the lives of those that you have poured your life into is one of the greatest joys there can be and one of the greatest reasons for Thanksgiving. If you don't feel like God is doing anything among you, you wonder, what are we gathering for? What are we here for? What do we live for? But when you actually see God at work, it gives you reason for thanksgiving. So we want to look at this text this morning, God at work, beginning in verse 13. We'll read down through verse 16. Paul writes, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved." so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. God's work in the lives of the Thessalonians was actually not unique to them. What Paul lays out here is is consistent with God's activity in all of human history right to this day, including in our own personal experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I'll have you note this morning the categories of God's work that Paul highlights in our text. First, he talks about God at work in terms of revelation. In verse 13, God has spoken. They received what they heard preached as the Word of God, not just Word of men. Revelation, God has spoken. In verses 14 through 16, the first part of 16, we see God at work in persecution, God has suffered, and that is why His people suffer too. And then third, we see God at work in vindication. God will judge. The cup of wrath is being filled up, and there will be a consummation to the age. First, consider with me this great reason for thanksgiving, and that is that God is at work in Revelation, God has spoken. Look at verse 13 again. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. This concept is foundational to the Christian faith. Ours is a religion Not a religion man has discovered or a religion man has created, but a religion God has revealed. It's entirely dependent on the truth that God has spoken. He has revealed what we otherwise could not know for sure. And it is God at work in the human heart that actually convinces us that the word of the gospel that we've heard from human messengers is actually from God. Himself. The Word you heard from us, really important that there be gospel witness. This is God's plan. It's a kind plan. He has chosen for human beings to be the messengers of His Word. And it is the Word that they received. Why did they receive it? Because they accepted it as the Word of God, not merely the Word of man. Now, not everyone who says they are speaking on behalf of God is actually doing so. There have always been many deceivers, and there still are. Paul has already talked about those that engage in flattery and impurity and deception and and greed and self-glory. These commonly infect the lives and communication of preachers and teachers who win a following for themselves. If you're like me, I, I, I don't know if I even like preachers because of this. Because so commonly, they are clearly in it for themselves. It's all about them. So, when you hear or read teaching and preaching, here's the crucial question. Is what is being said actually from God or not? Does it match what the Scriptures say? God's words have meaning. We dare not distort them. One of the reasons that we have the written Word of God is so that we have an objective test to what we hear orally, what we hear people teach. We can go back to the Word and test what's being preached as to whether it is for real. You need to be doing that every time you hear the Word preached, no matter who's preaching, every time you hear it taught, In the words of Isaiah, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. He was talking about wizards that peep and mutter and say that they've got some kind of message from the other world. They claim to have insight. They claim to have truth from the spirit world. And He says, no, does it match what the Scriptures say? This word of God was at work in you believers, Paul writes. It is energizing. It's operational. It's, it's making believers functional. God's Word has intrinsic power to bring about change in the human beings who receive it, because according to Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living, and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God has a way of just, like, wheedling right in to who you actually are and how you're actually thinking and, and what's actually going on versus the facade that all of us put up. In Psalm 1, we learned that the blessed man, the happy one, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord And on His law, He meditates. He chews on it day and night. And that kind of person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and all that He does, He prospers. The prospering that you see in the lives of believers comes from the seed of the Word planted in their life, and it is the life of God that has been planted in them through the Word that brings such Fruitfulness Jesus, as he was about to depart the world and he's leaving his disciples in the world that hates their master enough to crucify him, he lives in a, they, they're going to be living in a world where the prince of the power of the air dominates. And he prays for them. He says, "I do not ask that you take them out of the world." but that you keep them, that you guard them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Well, how are you going to do that, God? Sanctify them. Set them apart to yourself in the truth. Your word is truth. It's the word that shields the believer from the lies of the evil one. In Acts twenty thirty two, as Paul got ready to leave the ephesian elders and knows he's going to face imprisonment and all kinds of trouble he he leaves them with these words now I commend you to God I lay you out before God and to the word of his grace which is able, it has the power to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, it is the Word of God that is able not only to guard you from the evil one, but to make sure you make it home safely to your eternal inheritance. How do you know you won't fall away? How do you know you're not going to be duped? How do you, how do you keep from drifting? It is God's active Word active in our lives, causing us to grow and to prosper and to survive a hostile world and to make it safely all the way to our eternal home, along with all the saints, that is, all the people that actually belong to God. Even that the Thessalonians received what the missionaries preached as God's Word at the beginning showed God's work in them. Think about it. Sinners by birth and by choice and that's all of us, have a natural aversion to truth from God. So, so how can we ever receive it? We're already predisposed to reject it. First Corinthians 2 talks about that. Paul talks about the natural person. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, they're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. doesn't mean he can't understand the words. It means he can't receive them as true. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other words, it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word that causes us to receive the Word. And so he says about his own preaching in verses 4 and 5 of that same chapter, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I mean, there, there's lots of guys, men and women, that are really good platform artists. They're really good with rhetorical skill. They can entertain a crowd. They, they, they can mesmerize an audience. But he says, that, that wasn't the essence of what I brought you, but in demonstration of of the Spirit, and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, on the one hand, it really doesn't make sense that preaching a text from a collection, a library of books completed almost 2,000 years ago would have any relevance whatsoever to a current audience. It doesn't make sense that that it would connect it all with the life that we live. But it does, because it is the Word of God. And it's still, it still still is full of His power. It achieves what He sent it for. And for this reason, we are given the Great Commission to give out the gospel, the good news. I mean, think about it. We're told to have... To to engage, Jesus is saving the world and, 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 and all who will believe in him, and we're told that the way he's going to do it is for you and me to share his words. Words. That's how he's going to do it. But those words are God's words, and those words have power unlike any other words ever spoken. And that's why in Romans 10... Paul says, How then will they call in Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. In other words, for your mind and heart to hear God speak through His written Word and through the preached Word, for for you to have faith in that, it is actually produced by the Word itself. The Word has a life-giving effect. The Word causes people to hear. They're dead in trespasses and sin, and the Word is like Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Why are you talking to Lazarus? He's dead. Because my words have power to raise the dead. And this is the Word of God. So, for us, we here commonly have access to the Word of God and it's very easy for us to hold it cheaply and to think it's something less than it is. When you hear the Word of God preached, are you receiving it for what it is, the very Word of God and not just of men? Absolute truth you can rely on, intrinsic power and accountability for what you do with it. I mean, how many thousands of sermons have you and I heard how many thousands of times, maybe hundreds of times, but for many of us, thousands of times we have heard the word of God. How, how, do we, how do we treat it as God's word? I got thinking about just some practical ways that could help. First off, if you're teaching or preaching it, put in the time and effort to ensure that you're not distorting what it is actually says. Pay attention to the words. Explain them. Apply them. Keep the passage connected to the overall gospel message of the Bible, and don't leave Jesus out because there is no gospel without Him. Second, on the receiving end, prioritize the scheduled times God's Word is to be delivered to you. You can't take in the word well if you don't show up, or if you're too sleepy to pay attention. If you choose to stay up into the wee hours of the morning, Saturday night into Sunday morning, your choice to do so reveals you value your computer games or whatever else you're doing at that hour when you ought to be sleeping more than your ability to concentrate when you hear the word. Sometimes we don't have a choice about adequate sleep. Often Saturday nights are my worst sleeping nights of the week. But most of the time we do have a choice. It's all about what we value. Next, pray before you read or listen to the word. Talk to the one who gave the word. To open your mind and your heart to it. Take notes. Pretty simple. When my boys were growing up. They loved taking notes when they were like five and six years old and they had just learned to write. When they got into junior high, it was boring by then. It's too much like school. But some great, great notes at four and five and six years old. By, by the way, don't underestimate what your kids can take in. They can take in way more than you think they can. And before they can write, they can draw pictures about what's happened and talk to them about what was said. You'd be surprised. I bet that your kids, three and four years old, pick up more from the message than most of you do. I mean, really, now, if we walked out of the building, I mean, when we, on Thursday, when we're doing, we're doing Sunday review and say, okay, so how did Sunday go? I can't remember what I even preached. I have to go to my notes, okay? We don't have to remember everything that we heard, but but it's important that we're training our kids to, to take it in. Taking notes can really help you focus better. Um, it, it gives you a record that you can meditate on later uh, so that you're not losing the Word in the moment. And then commit to living in obedience to what you've received. Remember that the Word is given not just to be... To increase your, your biblical vocabulary, it's it's given to you so that you know how to live. And then talk about what you've heard with others. I mean, even before you meet with your life group, start with your family, start with your friends. On the way, look, on the way to lunch or over lunch, talk a little bit about what, what you got from God's word. Treat it as God's word. It's easy to talk about a thousand other things, but as we share the word together, we encourage one another. Well, let's move on to the second thing that we see, and that's God at work in persecution. And this might surprise us a little bit, but God has suffered. Look at what he says in verse 14, "'For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews.'" They were imitators of the churches of God in the Judea area, and and so what Paul is laying out here is that suffering for the sake of the gospel is really a hallmark of genuine believers. He's saying, look, I know God is at work in you because you are willing to imitate those that were being persecuted for the faith. All that want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution according to the Word of God. The churches in Judea suffered from the Jews who rejected Jesus. At one time, Paul was among those rejectors. that teaches you there's hope even for those who hate the truth. We know from Acts that it was the jealous Jews who stirred up the crowd against the Thessalonian believers, but here we realize that the mistreatment they endured went went beyond that. Their own countrymen joined in and attacked them. The rabble in the marketplace, the legal authorities, and, and evidently the pressure from the community continued. I mean, they were Greeks. They were in a privileged city, but their newfound faith in Jesus Christ brought accusations against them that they were dangerous rebels to their city and to the empire. They'd engaged in no violence, no sedition, but what they had come to believe was completely contrary to Greek philosophy. It was completely contrary to the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. To the Greeks, the preaching of the cross was foolishness, and same with the Romans. Who worships a crucified Savior? The gospel confronted as evil, long-standing pagan practices of the Greco-Roman world. Practices, by the way, that are becoming more popular today. It proclaimed one God, not many, and one Savior who physically rose from the dead and promised the same for His followers. It redefined how family life was to function, as we'll see tonight in Ephesians 5. It, it upended an honor culture where proud and, and strong succeed and where the weak are the despised and ignored and abused. Describing the sinful behavior of the unbelieving Jews, Paul reveals that there is a, a, a reason deeper yet for the violent hatred that the Thessalonian believers had endured He says in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The mistreatment directed against the believers in Thessalonica was rooted in hatred for the Lord Jesus. They killed him, they killed the prophets that God had sent to them. A prophet hears from God and speaks to others. They drove out the apostles, the sent ones from Jesus. This core hostility that breaks out in persecution is actually a hostility against God Himself. That is why evil people mistreat those who belong to God. They don't care about bringing God pleasure. They want to bring God pain. They resent His rule. They reject His authority. They see Him as a cosmic bully, holding them back from indulging their appetites, however they desire, or they see the people that say they're followers of God as those that invented Him to do that. It has always been that way. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if they keep, kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. Anyone who hates Jesus hates God, even if they say they worship God. They're worshiping a false God if they hate Jesus. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and had hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So understand this. Whenever you and I encounter mistreatment because of the faith... That mistreatment, that hostility is is actually directed toward God. You're getting caught in the crossfire. You're you're connected to God. And, And think about it. God has himself endured this. God the Son, the incarnate Son, has endured the hostility of man to the death. So whatever hostility you and I endure is what Jesus has endured along with us and for us. And that's why Paul will say in Philippians 3 that one of his goals was to know Him and the power of His resurrection, that He might share in His suffering, fellowship of His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. God Himself suffers the hatred of mankind. He has done so ever since the Garden of Eden. He suffers the hatred of Satan and his demons, and those who believe Satan's lies instead of God's word align themselves with the evil one and they do his murderous work. Jesus, God the Son of the flesh, has suffered the violence of humanity's hatred against God. So when we suffer for Jesus, we are not alone. He has walked this road first. He has suffered long before we ever did. He suffers along with us. In fact, Jesus confronted Paul before he was converted with these words, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took personally the mistreatment that Paul was directing against Christians, and he still does. Sin is always harmful, so this disregard for God ends up harming our fellow human beings, both saved and unsaved. They who reject the gospel, not only reject the truth, they hate those who believe it, and they don't want anyone else to believe it. And that's why Paul says they oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The reality is that when we oppose God, we oppose human beings, including ourselves, because all human beings are created in God's image with the capacity, the inborn need to know Him and love Him and worship Him. And so whenever I, whenever I turn against God and, and I express that hatred, I'm, I'm running interference between man and God. I'm, I'm holding people off from actually following Him. We can never be complete and whole apart from God. Our sin and rebellion stand in the way, and Christ came to break that satanic tyranny passed down to us from our first parents, Adam and Eve. They listened to the serpent and his lying assault against God. You know, people think they're free when they declare independence from God. They think they are doing a good thing to persuade others to do the same but they are not free. All they've done is give themselves over to the archenemy of God, Satan himself. They are his slaves, and they do what their evil master dictates. The Lord loves his servants and rewards them in this life and the next. Satan uses and abuses his slaves, destroying them and discarding them and finding pleasure in their pain and destruction. Which master do you want to serve? You're serving somebody. Whatever mistreatment you endure because of your love for Jesus, you are marking yourself as a genuine, born again child of God. So don't cave into the pressure. Don't reshape the gospel to fit the lies of the times. We need not fear the trouble. It's not worth comparing with the shining splendor that will be ours. we enter our inheritance. Finally, vindication, God will judge. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. These words tell us that God is keeping a record of the wrongs done. No one gets away with anything. Either Jesus pays for your sin because you're relying on a sacrifice for your sins to free you from their guilt, or you will pay for them yourself, every last one of them. How many think they can lie and cheat and steal with no consequence, that they can tear others apart with their words and God does not hear, that they can take advantage of others and God does not notice, that they can express hatred for the truth and those that follow it and no one will call them to account for it, How many people may attend a church on a Sunday morning and yet treat their family like trash on Sunday afternoon? Sometimes believers fret that those who hate and mistreat them are getting off scot-free. Not so. Sometimes Christians adopt a hostile spirit toward those who are hostile to them and try to even the score. It's not necessary. Romans 12 instructs us, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In other words, turn it over to Him. It's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says that these enemies of God and his people are filling up the measure of their sins. They're filling up the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out on them one day. Unless they throw themselves in the mercy of Jesus, there is no escape. Wrath has come upon them at last. And Paul uses a verb tense that points to completed action. So it may refer to sufferings that God brings to bear on His enemies through the ups and downs of history. He does that. The biblical record shows that. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God literally is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, hold down the truth. The verb tense could also communicate that the enemies of God of whom he speaks have crossed the point of no return, that their sentence has been sealed. We never know when we've crossed that line, but God knows. Another possibility is that Paul uses this tense to underscore that the wrath of God against such rebels to his gospel is so sure that it's good as done. For instance, we find him use it this way, a tense that way. In Romans 8, familiar verses, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called, according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, there's not one of us that's glorified yet. Not in the full sense. And yet he speaks of it as if it is done. Because it's that sure. The outcome is sure. Your destiny is either glory or wrath. Wrath. And it's all connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You receive him or you reject him. You heap up divine reward or you heap up divine punishment. There's no middle ground. If you belong to Jesus, you need not worry. You need not fret. No matter what you suffer now, vindication is coming. It's as good as done. God is at work. And with Paul, for that, we are forever grateful. We see him at work in his revelation, for he has spoken. We see him at work in our persecution, for God has suffered with us. And we see him at work in vindication. God will judge. God at work. Let's pray. Dear Father... We thank you for your word and the insight that it gives us and the admonishment and encouragement that it gives us. So, God, may we live according to what you have revealed, for you have given us your word on it. And for that reason, we know it shall come to pass. In Christ's name we pray.